One patient of mine, a gentleman with congestive heart failure, fever up to 102. We brought him into the emergency room. He had double pneumonia. His initial oxygen saturation was 93%. While in the hospital, we continued with the food regimen. He did not consume any processed foods. After being observed for about five days, he had a full recovery. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for giving the show a listen, or a view, or a download, wherever it is in the world that you are. We appreciate the fact that you are here. In life, we all have people who inspire us. We feel a connection with them, their work, and their message. These are the people who not only help us feel better about ourselves, but also about the future. They can be a bright light in the darkest of times. And my friend, right now, I think we can all use a little bit of that light. On today's show, Dr. Baxter Montgomery is going to be just that for us. We are going to hear about his nutrition-heavy approach to treating COVID-19 patients in Houston. Truly, the plant-based cardiologist is saving lives, and then he's transforming them with a strong focus on food. So that once they get over that hurdle, they can go on and have a healthier future. Now, these are the same principles that he's applied with heart patients for years. And now the same efforts, these same steps appear to be working hand in hand with traditional medicine in the battle against the coronavirus. Now, I am so excited to share this conversation with you. It's one that he and I had recently at the virtual Fairfax VegFest. And the one story that he shares about this particular patient became infected and then developed double pneumonia. This is a gentleman who, despite the odds, was able to pull through. This is nothing short of amazing. I cannot wait to share this story with you. And really... That is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many transformations that you will hear about today. Heart patients and coronavirus patients alike. I'm telling you, save this podcast because when you turn on the news and you're having one of those days and it just all seems to be too much to bear, pop this on. Listen to what Dr. Montgomery has to say, the amazing stories he will share, and you will begin to feel better about the state of things. Hope, my friends, hope is what he is delivering. Also delivering today, Drs. Neil Barnard and Vanita Rahman. They are here to actually kick things off for us with a wide-ranging Q&A. It is the fifth in our series. Very excited about this. They will be tackling a ton of your questions, including 
one from a COVID-19 survivor. How cool is that? Other questions on the docket today? Maybe these are some things that you've been wondering about yourself. How long does a carrier of the COVID-19 virus spread? How long do they stay infectious? And how do they determine whether a case of coronavirus gives someone permanent immunity? And is there such a thing as good fat versus bad fat? That's a particularly important question right now with a lot of people eyeing weight loss or trying to tackle those underlying conditions that increase the risk of COVID-19. They want to nip those in the bud. So is there such a thing as good fat versus bad fat? We'll find out. Plus questions about intermittent fasting, healthy eating, and a ton of other things. ton of other things. So let's get to them right now. Then let's get some hope. It is time for Q&A. Time to open up the doctor's mailbag and answer your questions. Let's start today with the question actually from a COVID-19 survivor. This one comes to us from Maria. Maria writes, Dr. Barnard, and I'm going to come to you. I'm recovering from COVID-19. My white blood cells are low, especially the neutrophils, and I've been plant-based for about three years. What do you recommend in terms of bringing back my white blood cell count? I'm worried that I might be susceptible to another infection. Okay, great question. Um, As you know, your white blood cells are the soldiers in your body. The red blood cells carry oxygen. The white blood cells are there to fight infections. Now, people on plant-based diets often have lower... Uh, white blood cells than other people. They get nervous about it, but the doctor says, don't worry, it's okay. And the research does seem to be to, to bear that out, that, that uh, for many people on plant-based diets, their white blood cells are a little sort of on the borderline low level. Um, and it does not seem to be related to risk of infection or anything like that. Now, however, in this situation, you apparently just had COVID-19. Now your white blood cells are low. What's going on? Uh, it's uh, obviously you want to talk, talk with your healthcare professional about it. However, in general terms, viral infections very often will suppress white blood cell counts. And as the, the virus is gone now, you're recovering, your white blood cell count is very likely to recover on its own. There are not medications or other treatments that doctors use to boost them back up. Dr. Ramon, we're going to pivot to you now. This one comes to us from Ellen. She writes, how long does a carrier of the coronavirus carry it for? I'm concerned when it's over that the carriers will be bringing it back again. So I th- if I'm understanding the question correctly, I think she's referring to maybe asymptomatic carriers, people who don't, who don't have any symptoms who may have it. Um, we, we think generally after about a week to two weeks, those people are not infectious anymore, but we will learn more about this once we have those serological tests. But if the question is about someone who's been infected and has recovered, when are they, and they had symptoms, when are they no longer contagious? It depends on how severe the the illness was for someone who has mild illness. Usually after about two weeks, they're fine. They're not usually contagious, but someone with more severe illness may take longer, several weeks longer than that. It just depends on where they are in their recovery and how long it took. Dr. Bronner, kind of along the same lines, this one comes to us from Kathy. She writes, how do they determine whether a case of the coronavirus gives someone permanent immunity? Um, For now, they're using tea leaves. Um, We we really (laughs) don't know. 
Um, we, it's pretty clear that there is some element of immunity that, that passes after a person's got it. How um, decisive that is and how long it lasts is anybody's guess. Um, keep in mind this virus is new. Um, we don't have lots of, of folks yet to study. So uh, we, will, we will know a lot more in the, in the coming months, but we, we, do, we don't have the answer to that question yet. Okay. And sticking with you, Dr. Barnard, this one comes to us from Natasha. She writes in, when will the dietary guidelines for Americans for 2020 be released? I know that it's not COVID-19 related, but it is pertinent. That's a great question. I think that's harder to answer than a COVID-19 question. Um, <laughs> you know, when they pick up a new pope, everyone gathers around in the Vatican Square and they're looking up for a puff of smoke to come out. Um, that's where we are here in Washington. We're waiting. We're, we're all looking at the horizon for puff of smoke when the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report comes out. Um, they're done every five years. It's supposed to come out in 2020. Um, stay tuned. Um, my, my guess is that you will see a... A, a committee report, probably within the next couple of months, that report is not final. That's just what the, the committee has recommended. Then it's subjected to public comment, and then they issue the final dietary guidelines quite a number of months after that. Dr. Rahman, coming to you for this next one, we've heard so much about the comorbidities when it comes to COVID-19, the coronavirus, and this one kind of goes hand in hand with that. It comes to us from Sadie. She writes, is there such a, a thing as good fat versus bad fat as some people preach, or should all fat be avoided as much as humanly possible? When some people who eat the keto diet talk about quote unquote healthy fat, what are they referring to? And is there any truth? She further writes, unfortunately, she's had zero success losing weight right now on a whole food plant-based diet by cutting out nuts, seeds, avocados, etc. Despite going to the gym three to four times a week, she's concerned that maybe the occasional use of flaxseed and uh, using soy milk on her morning, morning oat groats are what are keeping her overweight. Do you have any insight for Sadie? Yeah. So, you know, this does cause a lot of confusion. There are generally three types of fats. We're talking about saturated fat, unsaturated, and trans fats. Everyone agrees that trans fats are unhealthy and should be avoided, and they're sort of uh, a commercially produced fat. So they've been banned in most countries, including the U.S., so we're seeing less of that. As far as saturated versus unsaturated, we should avoid saturated fats. Um, unsaturated fats are healthier, but we need to minimize our intake of those as well. So the recommendations I give people is limit your intake of fats to less than 10% of your daily calories. And it's really important to read those nutrition labels and, and figure out how much fat is in a food. Um, and I, I appreciate her struggle with the weight loss and not going plant-based and not trying to keep it low fat and not losing weight. Um, I think it, it might be helpful to perhaps cut back on the flaxseed that she's consuming, uh, you know, that may be adding fat, which can contribute to weight gain. Soy milk itself should not be a problem. Um, a little bit of soy milk is nutritious, it's healthy. Um, and it might be, you know, it might be helpful to sit down with a plant-based expert and really go through her diet and see what's going on and see where um, changes might be helpful. And actually, if she wants to sit down with a plant-based nutritionist, obviously you and your colleagues at the Barnard Medical Center offer a phenomenal opportunity to do that. So Sadie, if you live in California, DC, Massachusetts, Maryland, Missouri, New York, or Virginia, just head over to barnardmedical.org to schedule an appointment or pick up the phone. You can do it the same way there. Call 202 
527-7500. Visit with either Dr. Rahman or Lee Crosby, wonderful dietitian. She's been on the show a bunch of times. Susan Levin, Maggie Neola, so many wonderful people over there that may be able to help you out. Dr. Bardar, coming back to you, uh, this one comes to us from a friend of the exam room, a woman by the name of Vanessa. She writes, love the show and I share it with everybody. Well, thank you, Vanessa. Uh, I have been vegan for about six months and I'm noticing that my hair is falling out like nobody's business. Did a bit of research and it may be due to an iron deficiency, but I know that I'm getting a ton of iron with all the lentils and beans that I'm eating. And I try to pair it with vitamin C. What am I doing wrong? What can help me absorb iron? Okay. Great question. Um, in all the years that we've been looking at plant-based diets, I have to say, I I can count on one hand, the number of times when that has come up, um, where people, their, their hair seems to be temporarily thinner. Um, and there, there are two explanations that I, that I have, have heard. Um, the first is that, that some people seem to do well by simply adding higher protein plant foods to their diet. Um, I'm thinking about things like tempeh, tofu, beans, uh, adding them in the diet for, in, in these anecdotal cases has seemed to help. Um, some others have suggested that that's something that occurs very rarely, but just at the very beginning of a person going on a vegan diet, very much like after a woman uh, gives birth, um, you'll see horm- big hormonal shifts that can often cause uh, hair loss on a temporary basis, and it comes right back. Um, the reason that, that that's an appealing uh, hypothesis is that hormones do change when a person goes on a plant-based diet. They're their level of estrogens, level of testosterone, get into a more healthy balance. And if you're in not good balance before, and now you're in a healthier balance, that shift will be reflected in the hair follicles and everywhere else. And that's a temporary phenomenon. So well, where does that leave us? We, uh, my guess is it has nothing to do with iron, but you do need iron. So green leafy vegetables will get you there. Um, and uh, you might add more plant protein to see if that helps. Things like tempeh, beans, tofu, good, cho- good choices. And then the third, if it, is a, if it is just a temporary phenomenon from the transition, time alone will take care of that. So um, there you have it. All right. Uh, Dr. Barnard, sticking with you here, this is a good one from Ronald. He writes, people keep saying when the virus goes away, but do viruses really go away or do they just go dormant? I have to say, you know, I, I think the model for, for COVID-19 is very much like the model for influenza A. It's just a century later. Um, back in 1918, the H1N1, uh, so-called Spanish flu, entered the population. Nobody had immunity to it. It killed an estimated 50 million people. And the annual influenza that we see every winter, these are all the progeny of that virus. So fast forward now, um, the end of 2019, 2020, COVID-19 has arrived. I Personally, I don't think we're going to be rid of it. It is possible that, that it will disappear, uh, one would hope so. But once these viruses enter the human population, they're, they're rumbling around and, and uh, ready to reemerge. You've undoubtedly heard the forecasts that they may re- reemerge in this coming winter, perhaps even worse than this past year. What is especially troubling, though, is that you have a, a virus like that that is in uh, the population, it's in farm workers, and then you have yet another emergence of a new coronavirus from a live animal market or somewhere else that through a process of reassortment can combine its genes with the existing coronavirus and you have a new and potentially more deadly 
uh, a virus. This is not a fanciful scenario. This is what happened. After the 1918 influenza virus arrived in 1957, there was a major reassortment, another one in 1968, uh, with just new viruses coming in, combining with the old virus, killing lots and lots and lots of people. So that is my fear. The answer to it is get rid of live markets, get rid of animal agriculture to the extent that you can, because these are animal viruses, uh, take care of the uh, underlying conditions as we were describing earlier, um, and practice good hygiene. Those are the things that we can do. About 10 minutes left here in the show, so keep your questions coming in. We will get to as many as possible. Dr. Rahman, this one comes to us from Sarah. She writes, what is the best way of dealing with cravings for less healthy foods? I'm vegan but crave sweets. I also have a tendency to overeat, even with healthy foods. I'm blessed, though, with slim jeans, but I'm not sure this is good for me, and it upsets my stomach. Any help that you can provide, Sarah? Yeah, so cravings for um, certain foods, you know, it's what I find helpful there is to, let's say someone is craving something sweet and chocolatey, then finding a substitute for that, that would satisfy that craving, but be healthier. So if you crave chocolate, for instance, doing a banana ice cream with a little bit of vegan milk, frozen banana and cocoa powder blended is wonderful. Um, same, you can do the same with any fruit. Mangoes are in season now, so you can freeze your mangoes and make banana, uh, mango ice cream the same way. And then if you're craving something savory or chippy, like instead of reaching for tortilla chips, which are usually fried high in fat, you can bake your own chips with, uh, tortillas, just put them in the oven for a few minutes, they come out crispy, and you can use that. So I think the key really is to, I would make a list of what the person is craving, and then look at some healthy cookbooks and online resources and see how they can change things around and make them healthy. I know on our website, we have a lot of recipes that I often share with our patients, so they can look for that too. Dr. Barnard, this one comes to you from Rhonda on Twitter. I'm using a number of medications twice a day and eat a no-dairy-only plant-based diet. I'm an avid tennis player with no asthma attacks in recent years. She wants to know, can she survive the coronavirus? Okay. Um, uh, Active uh, person, very physically active, following a healthy diet. Um, Yeah, yeah. you're doing the right things. Now, now, there are two basic strategies for defeating this virus. The first is to not contract it in the first place. Um, although the, uh, the steps are uh, the, the ones that you're aware of, of hand washing and, and social distancing and so forth, most uh, public health officials feel that that will ultimately fail as a long-term strategy, meaning sooner or later, the majority of North American adults are going to contract this virus. And that's true of people elsewhere as well. So the second strategy is to make sure that your body is as strong as possible. And you already know the the rules for that. Lots of vegetables and fruits, avoid the animal products uh, completely, Um, stay physically active. And uh, those are steps you're already taking. So you're on the right track. Sticking with you, perhaps the same advice here would apply for the question from Mr. Roberge. I like that name, Roberge. Uh, he's got himself a trifecta of issues, unfortunately. He writes, I have asthma, type 2 diabetes, and kidney stones. Any advice for dealing with all three? Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for asking a question because you're not alone. Um, those are, are, are three uh, concerning conditions, but, but other people have them too, and there's a lot that can be done. We've talked about a plant-based diet many times, and And with regard to if a person has diabetes or prediabetes, um, the answer is to get the animal products out of the diet. 
That means there's no animal fat in your diet anymore. And that means that the fat that's inside your muscle and liver cells will start to dissipate. Okay. So when the fat comes out of your cells, your insulin can start working better. And you'll discover that prediabetes can very often remit uh, and diabetes itself can improve and sometimes uh, go away. I'm speaking about type 2 diabetes. Uh, Quick caveat, don't just eliminate the animal products. Keep oils and oily foods really low too. The very same change will also improve blood pressure because you're avoiding the animal products, which tend to have sodium, especially the cheese, and you're eating vegetables and fruits, which are high in potassium. Sodium raises blood pressure, potassium lowers it. So you're getting toward these high potassium foods. That's going to help you. So plant-based diet, keep the oils low. Don't forget your vitamin B12. Lace up your stinkers. And lastly, don't fire your doctor. If you're on treatments for these things and you're following up with your doctor, stick with your doctor. Make sure that you follow the appropriate medical treatment, but let your doctor know that you're improving your diet so the doctor can back you off your medications if and when the time comes where that's appropriate. Dr. Rahman, this one coming to you. We have time for just a couple of more. So if you still have one rattling around in that head of yours, go ahead and post it in the comment section right now. Uh, this one comes to us from Anna. She writes, you spoke recently with Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbero about diabetes. One of them mentioned the benefits of intermittent fasting. I would love to hear more about that. Is there any effect on the immune system or is this just specific to weight loss? You know, intermittent fasting is such a hot topic right now. People are very interested and there's some data showing that it can support weight loss. Um, I would say a couple of things. One, um, intermittent fasting can support weight loss. Short term, we don't have long term data yet and we don't have any long term data about the immune system either. In, In terms of maintaining your healthy immunity, I think doing the things that we've talked about, eating a healthy plant based diet, exercising, these are the things that will really boost the immune system. And that's the most important thing we can do right now. And then as we have more information about the impact of intermittent fasting, we can look at that. But right now, let's go with what we already know, and that works. Dr. Barnard, as we're in the home stretch here, another question for you. Someone wondering about the symptoms of COVID-19. They're wondering, is diarrhea one of them? Um, yes, it is. Um, you know, it started off, people were uh, coughing, they were, p- people were feverish and so forth. Uh, but a number of people said, I don't have that, but I've got uh, bad diarrhea. Or uh, more frequently, they get all these things together. And yes, that can be part of it. Um, uh, about probably 80% of people, or maybe more, do have a fever. Many of them have cough, but you will see diarrhea too. Sticking with you, this one comes to us from Apoorva on Facebook. Does the coronavirus spread through centralized air conditioners at workplaces and in airplanes? Okay. The, hopefully, the, the ventilation where you work is not just cycling the air uh, around, because in that case, one would presume that the virus could, could circulate. Um, hopefully, it's taking it out of your building. That's what a ventilation system is supposed to be doing. Um, with regard to air travel, um, the air in airplanes is supposed to be filtered. But I'm with you. You're sitting at extremely close proximity to other people in a metal cylinder. Um, so if and when people start flying again, you're going to see every single person, including the, the staffers there, wearing masks and being nervous until they get back on the ground. I know that there was a single study that we mentioned in the headlines yesterday that was done in China that looked at one of the restaurants where they were able to trace back uh, the spread of the virus. And they found that um, they were concerned that it would have spread throughout the air system there, but 
it was limited to the table that the infected patient was sitting at as well as the neighboring tables, but did not, nobody sitting at any of the other tables on that entire floor came down with the virus. So perhaps that's a hint as to how this thing will turn out, but that is just one single study at one single restaurant. So take that with a little bit of caution. Uh, kind of in the home stretch here, uh, somebody here is wondering about the omega ratio, Dr. Barnard. How can someone who eats a whole food plant-based diet with a good omega 6 to 3 ratio, what is a good ratio? Read 2 to 1 or 1 to 1, but what should it look like here? Okay, this is for extra credit. Uh, most people don't really need to think about this at all, but um, but people who go plant-based do sometimes get into the weeds, may I say, and you're one of them. Uh, okay, so what are we talking about? There are healthy fats omega-3 fatty acids. In fact, your body actually needs one of these. It's called, this will not be on the test, alpha-linolenic acid is a basic omega-3. It's good. Your body turns it into other healthy omega-3s that are good for the brain and other parts of you. Omega-6 fatty acids will compete with it. You need a little bit of omega-6, but most people get way too much. So uh, what's the right ratio? Nobody knows exactly, but generally speaking, the closer you get to one-to-one, the better. So if you've got way too much um, omega-6 and not much omega-3, you might be 20-to-one or 10-to-one or 8-to-one. That's not good. You want to get closer to four-to-one, three-to-one, two-to-one. More, so have more omega-3. How do you get there? Um, the best way to, to get there, in my view, this is going to surprise you a little bit. You're waiting for me to say flax oil. Um, or hemp oil or chia seeds. Yeah, sure, you can, you can have those things. But my favorite, favorite, favorite thing of all is green leafy vegetables. Mm. What? Do green leafy vegetables have good fats? Send it to a lab. They'll send you a report back saying, hmm, broccoli doesn't have a lot of calories, but about 8% of the calories are from various fats and a surprisingly healthy ratio of them. So if your diet has lots of green leafy vegetables, yes, you're getting calcium and iron and and fiber and so forth, but you're getting the fats, fats that you need in the traces that you need and a really good ratio. Um, the other thing though, is to make sure that you're not getting too much of what's bad. So if your idea of a healthy dinner is French fries and ketchup, well, the fries just came out of uh, hot grease and that's super high in omega-6 and really low in omega-3. So keep the competing fats low, eat your green leafy vegetables, that's gonna get you in the right direction. Dr. Ramon, that is the perfect segue. So uh, thank you, Dr. Bronard. actually. This is great. The final question, Dr. Ramon, comes to you from Betty. She wants to know if you have any tips for cooking greens so they taste good. Oh, my goodness. Oh, there are so many ways to cook greens. Um, you can put them in a soup. Any soup you make, you can just toss them in the end. You can make scones with them. I like making scones with uh, curly kale. You can put them in smoothies. You can um, put them in a salad. You can throw them into a lasagna or a casserole and bake them. You can make kale chips. So lots of different ways to experiment with greens. Um, hopefully you'll find one that appeals to you. We recorded that segment live on the Exam Room Live. It's a new show that we're doing Monday through Friday on the Physicians Committee's Facebook page. We just got inundated with questions. I wish that we had more time to get to more of them. But the good news is, the good news is, 
every day, Monday through Friday, we will be answering at least one of those questions. And then once a week, we do this big, long, extended Q&A. And I want for you, who is listening to this right now, my friend, I want for you to be part of that as well. Even if you can't join us live, you can get your question in early. And all you need to do is send us a tweet or find us on Instagram or send us a message on Facebook. Send it to us using the hashtag exam room podcast. Now, here are the accounts that you need to know. I am at Chuck Carroll WLC on both Twitter and Instagram. And the Physicians Committee is at PCRM on Twitter and at Physicians Committee on the gram. Again, send us your questions and use the hashtag exam room podcast. Let's change gears now. And let's talk about that inspiration, that beacon of light that we spoke about at the top of the show. And for that inspiration, for that light, we are going to be turning to Dr. Baxter Montgomery. He is a plant-based cardiologist based in Houston who is working with COVID-19 patients. And what sets Dr. Montgomery apart from so many other physicians right now, all doing incredible work, but what sets Dr. Montgomery apart is the way that he is taking a nutrition heavy approach. And so what you're going to hear is a conversation that he and I had at the virtual Fairfax Veg Fest recently. This is a phenomenal event, originally scheduled just outside of Washington, D.C., to happen in person, the second annual one, going to be thousands of people there. But when the pandemic began, Gwen Whitaker, you know her, she's the founder of Green Fair Organic Cafe in Herndon, Virginia. Well, she said, we're still going to have this, but we are going to bring this online. And Dr. Montgomery was one of the featured speakers. So I was so honored that he would still take the time to sit down with us. And I had no idea what this conversation would entail, but I can tell you it was one of the most powerful interviews I have ever done on this show. It is so timely. It is so, so timely. And it's the kind of thing, like I said at the top again, that you're going to want to listen to when you turn on the news and you hear about all of the doom and the gloom and everything just gets to be too much. Turn on this interview with Dr. Montgomery listen to what he has to say and you will start to feel better about things. Dr. Montgomery, it has uh, been too long since our last chat. The world has changed quite a bit uh, in that time. Uh, l- let's start with addressing the obvious here. How is the situation in Texas? I understand that you've actually been treating a number of patients who have had COVID-19. That's correct. Um, just to give your uh, audience a little orientation, I'm a private practice cardiologist and I practice in uh, Houston, we have the largest medical center in the world, and we, we see a lot of patients with lots of acute illness. 
Um, and so my standard practicing patient with cardiovascular disease and related disorders, diabetes, hypertension, uh, and the like. So um, when the COVID pandemic uh, developed and progressed and we got to the point where you know, we started closing down institutions and, and even medical facilities started going on um, a reduced care. So we stopped doing elective surgeries, elective procedures and the like. Uh, and started gearing up for potential, you know, coronavirus uh, illnesses. So our practice, um, which, you know, was typically very busy with cardiac patients, started reducing the the office-based number of patients, and we started having an increased number of uh, telephone visits. Uh, And so a number of our patients, you know, who, uh, of course, during the flu season have, you know, flu-like symptoms, uh, we're calling in, and of course, we were going through the usual process of screening them. Uh, we do a telephone screen. Patients in the office, everyone got a screen, a questionnaire screen at the front desk. Anyone with any suspicious um, issues were masked, and uh, then we did further evaluations with uh, temperature measurements. Um, one particular patient of mine um, is a gentleman with congestive heart failure. Um, I was doing telephone visits with him. He clearly developed uh, overt symptoms, uh, significant fever up to 102, uh, severe headaches, uh, and the like. And so his condition was progressing. So we managed him at home for a period of time. Um, during that time, you know, we have a protocol that we use that we've always used uh, for patients with viral syndrome. So we didn't change that with this condition. Uh, we tend to put uh, patients on a detox regimen. Uh, we increase the amount of antioxidant foods that they consume. Uh, we then, uh, on, on a case-by-case basis, we may add supplements to that. So in that context with him, we added vitamin C. We had him take zinc supplements in addition to doing raw salads and smoothies. Um, there's a uh, uh, immune-boosting su- uh, supplement we use, um, uh, grapefruit seed extract. We had him take a certain amount of that for a couple of days uh, and we, this is a regimen we use with success uh, with patients uh, with illnesses. Typically, if a viral syndrome sets in for about 48, 72 hours, it may take it longer to be suppressed. Um, patients who, you know, start this regimen at the first sniffle, maybe the first cough, uh, they may suppress their illness right away. Uh, his condition had sat in for a while uh, when we started this, so he had a, a bit of a protracted illness. Uh, his illness uh, got to the point where I think after day eight, he continued to have headaches and fever. He didn't get worse, but he wasn't getting better. <clears throat> so I recommended he go to the hospital. So we brought him into the emergency room. Uh, and the chest x-ray showed that he had double pneumonia based on imaging. So we admitted him. The pulmonary team, and along with myself, took care of him. Uh, but his initial oxygen saturation was 93%. While in the hospital, we continued with the superfood regimen. Uh, he did not consume any processed foods. He may have had one slip up at home. But, you know, with this regimen, and it was my interpretation, by the time he got to the hospital, he was starting to sort of plateau. And so by being, after being observed for about five days, he had a full recovery uh, and was discharged home. Uh, the follow-up with him is an outpatient. <clears throat> of course, he became afebrile while in the hospital. Uh, upon being discharged, um, his headache went away, um, his energy picked up. Uh, he had a subsequent initial COVID test was positive. So he was 
you know, uh, infected. A subsequent test was negative. Uh, we have yet to test for antibodies. We plan to test for antibodies in our office pretty soon, and I suspect he should be IgG positive for, for COVID, so he um, uh, should be immune. So this is one example of a patient who went through the process, and just with just natural high-dose antioxidants, some immune-boosting uh, uh, nutrients, uh, he was able to turn the corner, and uh, his immune system uh, uh, is really what treated the disease, cured him of his illness. And that's really the point I like to emphasize. And, and some of the points I've emphasized before is that our cure, and I'll use that word, our cure for infectious diseases of any type is a healthy immune system. Uh, our cure and treatment for cancer is a healthy immune system. So our body is designed to be attacked by foreign uh, invasions, if you will, uh, foreign entities, ba bacteria, viruses, fungi, the like. Uh, and our immune system is designed to protect us for that. It is our job to nourish our bodies to the point where our immune system is capable of doing the job that it needs to do. Let me ask you this. There's so much still unknown about COVID-19. This is brand new in the scheme of things, even though it seems like we've been living in this lockdown now for seemingly forever. It's really <laughs> only been a few months since it's been here on, on this earth at all. But how confident were you that that course of treatment that you were talking about would be successful in your COVID patients? Given that heart disease is one of the leading comorbidities, were you still very confident that this was the right approach? Well, yes, because again, you know, you look at disease states across the board. I mean, you, we, we say, okay, COVID is something new. Um, I don't want to sound controversial. It's new, but not really. Um, you know, there have been coronaviruses that's been here before, and we've had them. Uh, it's a new type of coronavirus. It's new to our immune system. So there's some things about it that's different. But as we look at more and more data, the more and more data is coming out is starting to pan out to be something very similar to the flu in certain cases and other coronaviruses. So we, what seems to be very new isn't really new. Um, I've been in this business and treating patients for a very long time. And, and, and every now and then there becomes a quote unquote new disease. Uh, but it's not always so new. It's just something that is a, is a different form of something before. And so our body's immune system is equipped and designed to deal with anything, even though it appears to be new to us on the horizon, our body's immune system is very smart and very capable. We may not have the ability to create a new drug, if you will, or a new vaccine, if you will, but our body is equipped to address it. And that's the magic of our, the human body. So that's why it's important for us to take care of our body. It doesn't matter what treatment, how powerful our treatments are. If our body is not equipped to maintain itself and heal itself, the body will deteriorate and be defeated. I don't care how strong the antibiotics are, the antivirals are. If your body is not well-equipped, if your body is not properly nourished, it's ultimately your body's ability to heal itself that really controls your disease, whether you're talking about a broken leg or a viral infection. Being brought up in our society, generally speaking, the rule of thumb is you're sick, you go to the doctor, you take a pill. Something's wrong with you, you go to the hospital, you have surgery, and then pills after that. Your approach is more focused on food. The patients who come to visit with you, how receptive are they to the message that, hey, 
let's go ahead and treat the underlying cause here as opposed to the symptom. Are, are they able to make that connection pretty quickly between their diet and their health overall? Well, yes. Um, we have a skewed population because of we've become known not only in our region, but nationwide. We have patients flying from all over the United States, East Coast, West Coast, based on what they've seen um, and based on what they've heard. Um, so most of our patients coming in are sort of predisposed to that. However, we do get patients who come in who are, you know, a little bit new, don't know exactly what to expect. And we're pretty straightforward with them. Um, the concept is so basic uh, that once you just sort of put, you know, you know, you lay it out for them, most patients really understand that. The patients we have difficulty with, and, and that goes across the board, are patients who tend to be a little bit addicted to the food that they eat. So then if they're addicted to certain foods, then they will put up all sorts of excuses as to why it's not important to make dietary changes or the like. Um, patients who are not addicted to foods who are willing to make the change, they make the change. We also have programs that are very um, precise and very short-lived that gives them a chance to go through, say, a detox for a finite period of time, and they get very good results in that period of time. And that also helps them understand that experiential knowledge is really important. And that's one thing that we, that's important with our detox program. Being a former food addict myself, I know how difficult it can be for someone even to realize that they are addicted to food. For somebody who really has their heels dug in on this particular thing, what do you say to them to try to get them to move forward in a healthier direction? Or is your message kind of tough love? Like you have to be ready to change until then you're going to continue going down this unhealthy path. Yeah, we have a number of skeptics. I, I remember uh, one gentleman coming in, he's uh, in his seventies and, and um, you know, he came to us because he was on a lot of medications. He was very fatigued and, and a, lot of, a lot of issues going on. And he was fairly argumentative. I mean, it, I would talk about, you know, plant-based diet, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, oh, this is, so I put him on a raw detox. He says, no, I can't do this. This is, you know, not very good and so on. I said, no, just do it, just four weeks. This guy went through it for four weeks. He came weekly for visits. He drove a long way to the office. And it was a problem for him. However, he did it 100%. At the end of four weeks, the evidence spoke for itself. He was skeptical. He was, he had lost weight. He was feeling better. His wife said he looked better. His wife said he was more energetic. It was to the point that he didn't really want to accept the positive changes, but he couldn't deny it. And we had weaned medications. We had reduced his medications tremendously. I say that to say this. If we can get our patients past that first four weeks of a raw detox, We've made an important first step. It doesn't mean that they're, always, they're already there. They will have relapses. Relapses are virtually 100% in my experiences. And we understand that and we use those relapses to our benefit. But that first important step of getting there, the proof of concept creates a, a breakthrough in their, their potential mental problem with detox to where they say, you know what? I may not like this. I may not believe in this but I cannot deny that it worked. And that's what that gentleman said. Let me ask you about what's happening 
down in Houston where you are. Here in Washington and in other parts of the country, we hear so much about there being a disproportionate number of COVID patients who are African-American. Is that the same that you're finding down in Houston right now? Well, um, I haven't looked at the Houston data in detail. I think it does mirror the data across the country. Our numbers are not as large overall. Um, that's not surprising because Black Americans are are leading in other cases, heart disease, cancer, diabetes. So when you are the number one group in predisposing conditions, and we know that predisposing conditions are what predispose you to become ill from coronavirus or die from coronavirus, then it's not a surprise. In fact, it'd be surprised if you were not uh, leading individuals in getting coronavirus. And how do you begin to introduce that conversation in the African-American community that, hey, you know, although you we have higher uh, rates of these things, high blood pressure, heart disease, things of that nature, we also have the power within us to really kind of reverse that trend. I know that this is a very deep conversation, but let's just kind of start on a surface level. How do you begin to get people to realize that it starts on your plate and just because your mom and your grandma had diabetes doesn't mean that you have to as well? That's exactly right. We, I mean, I'm very straight with all my patients. I look at it uh, not as blaming, but really empowering. Um, you know, if, if someone comes in and they have lots of health issues and and, you know, again, I've read the press. People don't talk about disparities and they talk about, you know, racism and various things. And, and these things exist. However, what I'll say to an individual is this. You may have the whole world against you, but it's still your responsibility to make a move to improve whatever your position is. Uh, you may not have anything in your favor, but it starts with the mindset that you're going to do this and this is important. If it starts in the mindset, anybody can change their mindset. Once it starts with the mindset, then it makes a difference. I've had patients who are homeless. I've had patients who are on fixed income, Medicare, jobless, old, et cetera. One um, older patient, she was 74, 75 years old. No, she was almost 80, 79. Severe rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, came into the office and having problems with the medications. I mean, she's kind of frail and her knees or joints are all bent up and everything. And, you know, she said, look, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I can't afford your detox. And I said, really? I said, well, what's your monthly budget? She says $50. I mean, no weekly budget, $50. And so I went with my uh, uh, manager, wellness manager, I said, look, she needs to be on a smoothie feast detox. I want you to create a smoothie feast that uh, for $50 a week where it meets her budget and we make a profit. And she did that. The patient came in, started doing foosie, uh, uh, smoothie detoxes week after week after week. You notice this frail old 79-year-old lady after about two or three weeks was starting wearing makeup. She was coming in. She used to have somebody drive her. Then she was driving herself. She would come in, grab the large bags of bottles of smoothies herself, walk out, she went from walking with a cane, without a cane, et cetera. Now, we could have sat around and, and made excuses and, and, you know, and felt sorry for her, but we didn't want to do that. She didn't want to do that. We said, look, what is the plan? If you're determined to do this, we're determined to help you. 
What are the obstacles? Let's make this work. And so, uh, and that's why we got into the, the whole business of getting into the food business. You know, we have a restaurant in our side. We do raw detox uh, because when I put patients on this diet, uh, we couldn't control what they were eating, where they were going. So I said, we need to figure out how to do that. I didn't learn how to be a restaurateur in, in medical school, uh, but I had to figure it out. So the same attitude I conveyed to my patients, I conveyed to myself. Whatever I need to do to figure it out, to be better, be a better physician, because I noticed many of my patients, they didn't need a cardiologist, they needed a chef. So I became a chef. Uh, and uh, we put in the restaurant. Now we're expanding into the grocery business. We're actually connecting with local growers. We're doing what it takes to be a better healthcare facility for our patients, locally, nationwide, wherever the case may be. And we're asking our patients to be innovative. Sometimes I'll challenge a patient not for their own benefit. I may see an elderly person who has various other issues. I say, ma'am, you're not doing this for yourself. You're doing this for many other people who are waiting for you to succeed so that I can then tell your story so then they can succeed. When they hear that, that motivates them to make the extra step. It's all about mindset. Once you change the mindset, everything else becomes process tactics. Uh, I want to go back to the patient that you were talking about with COVID-19 at the top of the interview for those who are just now joining the interview. If you could just kind of walk us through again, the audience is, is substantially bigger and, and what you were able to do with this gentleman when he first presented and how you were able to treat him. Yeah. So this gentleman, um, <clears throat> one of our patients, congestive heart failure, has some cardiac arrhythmias. Um, and he, we began working with him by telephone visit. And so he was having fevers and headaches at home. And um, so we put him on a raw detox. We put him on raw smoothies, salads. Uh, we had him on um, some vitamin supplements. Uh, we had him on a grapefruit seed extract, uh, nutrient uh, immune booster for a few days. Uh, and we had him go through the process, keep himself hydrated, et cetera. And the symptoms persisted for about eight days as he was an outpatient. He wasn't getting worse, but he originally wasn't getting better to, to any noticeable degree. Because of that, I said, well, I'll tell you what, go to the emergency room, let's evaluate you in the hospital. He did go to the emergency room and they called me. They had done a chest X-ray. He had double pneumonia. His oxygen saturation was 93% at room air, which you know wasn't too bad given he had double pneumonia. Uh, and so... Um, so he was never really given supplemental oxygen. They tried him on it, went up to 98%, but we admitted him to the ward, uh, to the CCU. Uh, we observed him there. His oxygen had picked up by that point. Uh, he was later transferred to a special part of the hospital where they managed the COVID patients in our hospital. But he was only there for about five days. So he had about a 13-day course. During the hospital, he became a febrile within about the second day. Uh, he only had a low-grade fever by the time he was in the hospital. I think his fever was up to 102, uh, 101 at home. It had gotten to maybe 100, 101 in the hospital. It had gone down after that. But his condition, really, his body was fighting the virus throughout the whole process. He remained nourished. He remained on a raw diet, smoothies, salads, juices. And so his immune system was being enhanced. Just think of it this way. If you have two countries fighting each other, country A and country B. And, you know, they're shooting bombs and the like. And you want country A to win. You're going to then send bombs and weapons and maybe even soldiers over to country A to support their fight. 
Now, there may be a bit of a standoff, but, but the more weapons you send the country, the country A, they will eventually prevail. That's what it is with your immune system. The virus is trying to take over and replicate. The immune system trying to overcome the virus. The more you feed the immune system during that time, during that fight, you know, vitamin C, vitamin A, zinc, raw fruits and vegetables, hydration, sleep, the more you feed the immune system during that fight, the immune system will eventually prevail. That's even during the infection. So we tell our patients before you're infected or even during your infection, raw fruits and vegetables, detox, supplement vitamin C if needed, zinc is needed. We have a regimen we, we uh, recommend. Uh, and you want to enhance your immune system's ability. That's your ultimate battle against this virus. So this individual, he recovered. Um, he was uh, confirmed COVID positive. Uh, he had a follow-up uh, test. He was negative. And we're going to do the antibody test to confirm his IgG uh, immunity. But uh, he's doing great. He's out, you know, walking, running. He's having a great time, you know, since he's, he's now defeated the virus. Dr. Baxter Montgomery dropping some inspiration and a whole lot of knowledge with us here at the virtual Fairfax VegFest brought to you by Green Fair Organic Cafe, a plant-based diet, Mom's Organic Market, and of course the Evolution Vegan Academy. Have you been working, Dr. Montgomery, with any other uh, COVID patients or was this your one and only case? He was the most significant case. We've had a number of mild cases uh, that they had mild flu symptoms and just got better. Um, a handful of them were positive, but again, they were, I mean, they didn't go to the hospital. He was our one patient went to the hospital. What I will say is this, and you asked the question, you've been working with COVID patients. I consider anybody at risk for catching the COVID virus, a COVID patient. And so we systematically place all of our patients on a detox. So we have a regimen, we email blast to them, uh, we encourage them all the time to do detoxes periodically. Uh, a detox is a therapeutic tool. It's one thing that we use for patients to initiate uh, getting on a plant-based diet. But a detox is something that people, patients should do on a regular basis. If you have diabetes or high blood pressure or heart disease, we know that people are not perfect. They should do intermittent detoxes, raw fruits and vegetables only, for four weeks. So with our other patients, during this flu pandemic, we recommend they go on a detox Initially, then stay on a clean plant-based diet, uh, take supplements, exercise. So we're treating our patients prophylactically to suppress the infection or to suppress extended illness if they were to get infected or colonized. One of the questions that we've gotten asked repeatedly on the exam room recently is, have there been any studies done on the diets of patients with COVID-19? The answer to that question right now, to the best of my knowledge, is no. But in your estimation, just give me a hypothesis, would you say that among COVID-19 patients, if there was such a study, it would say that the number of them who were eating exclusively a plant-based diet would be very low compared to those eating that standard American diet? Well, I mean, I would guess, um, and I'll put it this way, um, patients who are ill with COVID infection have underlying diseases, chronic illnesses, heart failure, diabetes, and the like. We know that an unhealthy diet potentiates those illnesses. So I would just make the extrapolation and say, yes, in all likelihood, the people who are sick with underlying illnesses 
are likely eating an unhealthy diet. All right. Now, I know that this was supposed to be a, a big old in-person festival here, but circumstances being what they are, Gwen has worked very hard with her team, worked tirelessly to turn this into the virtual Fairfax Veg Fest. Nonetheless, I understand that you still have uh, some slides there, a presentation uh, that you would still put together for this very event. What I like to do is share with the audience our general approach, and I think it's important to understand Okay, exactly what do we do here? And I'm not going to spend too much time. This is part of an elaborate uh, presentation, or I should say more elaborate presentation that I do. But when someone come in, comes in as a patient, we make a general clinical assessment. So um, as any doctor's office, we uh, have physical exams, uh, biomarker testing, uh, non-invasive testing that we do. Uh, sometimes we take them to the hospital. Some patients are critically ill. So they have to have invasive procedures done. So we cover the whole spectrum is what I want to, to, to uh, emphasize. And I like to describe our approach more as one as an integrative approach. Um, the things that we do in modern medicine are necessary in many cases. I think where we frequently fall short is that we stop there. We don't um, encourage patients or treat patients with a nutritional regimen. So um, our approach, basically, we have medication assessment. Uh, we look at a food prescription. So we start them on a nutritional uh, regimen, and we try to wean the medication. So it's really a three-part clinical assessment, uh, nutritional wellness assessment, and then the therapeutic approach is optimizing medications, which frequently is either weaning or reducing the number of medications, or maybe replacing some with medicines that are more effective, starting them on a nutritional regimen, uh, immediately, um, and then um, following them clinically over time. One little quick tidbit as I flip through these slides, there's a patient in our office, and while waiting in the lobby, he suffered cardiac arrest. And so I remember one of our front desk people came banging on my door, and there he was out. We started doing CPR, and uh, we resuscitated him right there. Uh, the ambulance came. He came to, uh, and, you know, his heart failure patient had been um, uh, slipping on his diet and various other things. Uh, we were giving him ECP therapy, so we put him in the hospital. While in the hospital, you know, we did the initial evaluation. We did a heart uh, chordiangiogram. He received the defibrillator. But while he was in the hospital, we initiated a detox regimen right then and there. So the reason I point that out is that it's an integrative approach. Just because he had a cardiac arrest and needed to be resuscitated, we did that. But then after we resuscitated him, we said, look, you really need to detox in addition to the other things that we're doing. So that's really the philosophy behind what we're doing because all of these therapies are important for that patient. Now, you would like to have someone on detox and event, prevent the cardiac arrest, but you meet patients where they are. And where he was at that day was cardiac arrest, and we addressed that. This slide talks about our standard way of weaning medications. I'm not going to go over the details. I just want to show this slide just to point out the fact that there's a methodology, a standard protocol in which we use to wean medications. Weaning medications is very important. We see many patients on 20, 30 medications, and the polypharmacy is part of the disease state. The medications, for the most part, is only palliative, and many of them need to be reduced or removed, and the patient needs to rely on nutrition and other lifestyle measures to improve their overall well-being. I saw a patient in the office the other day, uh, she's a lady we've been detoxing with, weaned off her, her uh, antihypertensives and the like. And I saw that she was on an anxiolytic medication. I saw it there. And I, 
I said, well, are you still taking this? She says, I take them only once, once every one or two weeks uh, because you told me to stop. And I said, well, are you still having anxiety? So no, I'll just take it if I feel like I'm going to have some anxiety. So we'll just stop taking it. Don't rely on it. So the bottom line is that when the body becomes healthy, properly nourished, even emotional uh, uh, issues are under better control. I, I, one comment I would make, I think uh, with an earlier interview, um, the comment was made about an individual having one cheeseburger going to the emergency room. Uh, that's very true. Individuals, when you're on the detox regimen, you have one bite, one drop, one crumb, uh, can send you to the hospital. I had one patient uh, who we were detoxing years ago, and he got off. He had maybe a couple of spoons of oyster soup. Within about 36 hours, he was intubated in the CCU. So these uh, veering off when your body's clean, the body can overreact in a way that can make you very sick, especially if you're a very ill patient. Not being a doctor, what I think is, and please tell me if I'm wrong, my guess would be this stuff has not been in your body for so long. When you ingest it, it kind of treats it like a, like a foreign invader. And so your body just attacks it kind of. And is that what causes such a violent reaction in some people? You know, that's, that's certainly a way to look at it. If, if you, if you were to, and here's one way I've, I've rationalized the thought and thought it through. <clears throat> Let's start from the very beginning, maybe at birth, et cetera. And even at then we'll probably become accustomed to eating certain things. But let's say eat cheeseburgers and fried chicken and pizza every day of your life. Now these foods are foreign to your system. However, your body adapts to it. Now that's a, it's a maladaptation, but it's an adaptation of sorts to where uh, you don't throw it up. You don't pass out, you know, it may or may not raise your blood pressure. It will raise your blood pressure, but it does it in somewhat of a blunted effect because the body has to adapt to it. You may increase more fat cells. You may do a lot of things to adapt to these toxins that you're receiving on a regular basis. So you're accustomed to being in a, what we call an oxidative state. However, over time, you know, you break down. So let's say you go through a process where you clean your system out. You remove these toxins. Because when you remove bad foods from your diet, the body is constantly trying to remove toxins from tissue levels, uh, at the cellular level, intracellular level. There are chemicals and things that it's trying to move out all the time. But because you're constantly replenishing it, it's hard for the, to have a net removal. But if you stop uh, in, uh, introducing these chemicals to the body, then you have a net reduction of chemicals, a net reduction of reactive oxygen species, a net reduction of free radicals and the like, and you're suppressing them with these antioxidants. So over time, as you're removing these things, the body starts to heal. Now, there's some process by which the body becomes extra sensitive to these foods once they're removed, because it's almost like having, you know, 10 receptors, and then you put a chemical in to suppress those receptors and you go down to your body makes an extra 10 or whatever the case is and you remove the chemical and you got 20. So you become extra sensitive to whatever that chemical is. And it's like this. And the same thing with uh, someone who's detoxing on something else. So you remove these chemicals and all of a sudden it's reintroduced. You have a greater sensitivity than you've had all along because in the chronic state, your sensitivity has been suppressed. Once you've healed, your sensitivity is greater 
and your body recognizes this to be the poison that it is. Man, y'all think that this is nutrition 101? No, 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 no. This is graduate level. This is like 302. This is like PhD, MD. Like this is, this is legit knowledge that is being dropped right now. Thanks for taking us to school. I really appreciate that. No problem. My pleasure. Uh, before we get back to COVID, I think that something that a lot of people might be wondering is you've worked with so many patients for so long now. Is there one case of, of heart disease that you saw that was just so advanced and even you were surprised that you were able to see a reversal of after this person had implemented a, a diet change? I presented in the reverse. There was, we've had a few cases where I'm surprised that they're able to walk into the office. Um, it's the, I've gotten to the point where I'm not so surprised about the recovery uh, I'm just surprised how some people can exist on the type of foods they're eating, the foods they're not eating, the medications they're taking, the age they have. And, it's, and I'm just frequently amazed of that, the people that are, that are still around. Uh, we have patients with, you know, heart failure, liver failure, uh, kidney failure. There's one patient in the hospital to answer your question more directly. There's one patient I treated years ago in the hospital and uh, she was a patient I had implanted a defibrillator on. She had chronic lung disease. So she had chronic lung disease or lung failure, congestive heart failure. She was developing liver failure while in the hospital. She was intubated uh, and her kidneys were about to fail. So multi-organ dysfunction slash failure uh, and her family had refused dialysis. So if it didn't allow us to dialyze it, she was going to die. So I talked to the family and said, look, let's, let me try some things. Uh, and they agreed. So she had a peg tube, a feeding tube going through her stomach. So I started giving her green superfoods, liquid superfoods through her peg tube. And at the same time, I discontinued the other, um, um, I think they had it on intravenous feeds. Uh, I discontinued that. No, they had their on the other uh, intra, uh, parental feeds. I discontinued the regular parental feeds, put on the super greens, and then I started weaning medications. And so we detoxed her in the hospital. Progressively, the kidneys improved, liver improved. She started making lots and lots of mucus uh, coming out of the lungs. That told me that the lungs were detoxing, that the respiratory therapist could hardly keep up with suctioning. Uh, she eventually walked out of the hospital. Uh, that was an impressive case to me because, uh, you know, she was in a very slippery slope. You know, when your liver and kidneys are failing, you're developing an acid base. But we loaded her with superfoods. Fortunately, her gut was well enough to absorb it and being in the liquid phase. And I want to point out, if you look at my food classification system, people often ask, why do you make smoothies and juices uh, level zero, we think we should chew a food, etc. That's one reason why. The sickest of patients will not be able to chew their food. She was not able to chew leafy green salads. She needed to have liquid juices, greens, fed through the peg tube. And in that state, that's the food you need. That's why I give that the highest ranking. Uh, and so we got her to a point where she recovered and walked out of the hospital. That's the most amazing case that I see in my, my uh, career. I love the fact that you said that she walked 
out of the hospital. That to me speaks volumes from going from being in such dire straits to being able to walk out of the hospital. That is one heck of a transformation. Um, Dr. Montgomery, in the time remaining that we have, I want to shift back and take a look at COVID-19. If you could pull up your slides that you have put together for that as well. And again, if you're hearing the audio version of this, just head over to the virtual Fairfax VegFest Facebook page or the Physicians Committee's Facebook page, and you can actually see this presentation. But Dr. Montgomery, if you could kind of walk us through uh, your food prescription for the coronavirus, that would be fantastic. I tend to think of the immune systems as two basic parts. You have the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. And really, it's, it's very simple. Your innate immune system is your skin. You have physical barriers, skin, GI tract, eyelashes. These are things that really protect you from foreign agents. We often don't think of them as part of the immune system, but you know, if you think of burn patients, you know, people who have severe burns through large parts of their body, they're at high risk for dying from infection because of the loss of their uh, skin. And people with gastrointestinal problems are at increased risk for infection. So, you know, th- these are some of the barriers that are important. They have defense mechan- mechanisms such as sweat, secretions, mucus, um, <clears throat> and their general immune response. Uh, their leukocytes, which are you know, inflammatory cells of different types, uh, they communicate through other chemical reactions. And so they communicate with each other when a foreign agent passes the physical barrier, gets inside the body, and certain activities are done. They also communicate with the adaptive immune system, B cells and T cells. They have their own chemical receptors and chemical um, uh, modulators that communicate with other cells. They also create the antibodies that gives you uh, specific immunity. So if you look at the balance, I like to think of things as in balance. So things such as reactive oxygen species, uh, these can be generated through metabolism. When you exercise, you create these uh, chemicals. Um, they can be created by your immune system. So these so-called negative uh, chemicals uh, can be beneficial in many ways, and they're part of our normal uh, physiology. So they have to be balanced by what we know as antioxidants. Uh, these prevent free radicals from damaging the cells. Um, and if you have lots of free radicals that are roaming around freely, they can damage the heart uh, tissue, uh, uh, the immune tissue, uh, pancreas. And so that's why we develop these chronic illnesses. And these are found in uh, raw fruits and vegetables. So what you want to do is you want to have a balance between your antioxidants and your reactive oxygen species. So on the left of subset A, you have the scales of justice here you have an equal balance of the reactive oxygen species and antioxidants. However, if your diet is poor, then you can have an imbalance. So if you have more reactive oxygen species and antioxidants, you're eating fried chicken, you're eating pizza on a regular basis, uh, processed oils and the like, uh, then you have excess reactive oxygen species. You're in a condition of oxidative stress. I'm not sure if any of your listeners are barbecuers, but you know, in Texas, a big place in barbecue and in over 20 years when I used to do that, uh, you get your barbecue coals hot and you have the smoldering coals. So you have smoldering hot barbecue coals and they're smoking. So there's a fire but not a flame. But if you take some uh, starter fluid, lighter fluid, and spew it over the coals, you then get a woof of flame. So essentially, the coals is an oxidative stress. That's where the hot coals are flaming and you have it's a potential setup for a flame. And all you need is some kind of a trigger. 
That trigger could be a viral infection. That trigger could be um, maybe a bad meal that has excess toxins. It'd be a cigarette or an emotional event that happens that, that acts as an igniter of that oxidative stress and woof, throws it in flame. So that's where you have an acute event. The acute event, like that flame in the barbecue pit, could be a heart attack. It could be decompensated heart failure. It could be decompensated uh, lung disease or an asthma attack or, hey, a viral infection that puts you in the emergency room. So what you want to do is you want to prevent that from happening and keep yourself in balance. So if you consume lots of junk plus an infection, that puts you at risk for worsening oxidative stress and imbalance, and then that puts you in the hospital. That's why those people are sick. And so that's why we're treating our patients raw fruits and vegetables only, superfoods. Um, I had a patient admitted to the hospital just a few weeks ago. He was transferred from another hospital, my hospital, bad decompensated heart failure. I put him on an intravenous vitamin C. Uh, We put him on a raw diet. His lactic acid went from a 16, which is extremely high, down to one. His kidneys started failing. They turned around and improved. His heart pumping function improved. We were able to remove him off the inotropic drugs. So just by hitting the body with these antioxidants, even in the acute illness state, you have time to reverse these things because you're putting things back in balance. Here's some things you want to uh, consume, vitamin A, vitamin C, vitamin E, selenium, uh, zinc, glutathione. Uh, All of these can be found in your plant food kingdom. Uh, We recommend our patients for COVID-19. Obviously, follow CDC recommendation. Seek medical attention as uh, signs and symptoms dictate. And um, consume your minimally processed plant-based diet. Yeah, well, I I greatly appreciate your time today. You've certainly opened our eyes to a lot of things, hit us with a whole heap of knowledge. And I know that uh, you've created something special for those who are watching today, those who are listening. Uh, You are offering a discount uh, for your online nutritional boot camp? Yes, sir. Um, The uh, online nutritional boot camp is online.montgomeryheart.com. And uh, if you type in the promotion code FairfaxVF, uh, that's capital F, lowercase A-I-R-F-A-X and capital V and capital uh, F, uh, you get $100 off the program. It's an annual subscription. And this is the program we've used over 16 years. Uh, This is a program where we've shown the scientific evidence. What we've done is made this program available. um, It consists of me going through um, the series of week to week and walking through the detox. Uh, There are some, um, of course, recipes, uh, but we actually walked you through it in our lectures and I talked about the mechanism of the detox, uh, talked about the nutritional uh, value of the detox regimen uh, and the like. And we had some uh, very good success. There's one gentleman uh, who recently went through the program. He was already a vegan when he started and his cholesterol is still high, uh, but his total cholesterol went down significantly. Triglycerides, which were high, went down uh, by 60%. Uh, triglyceride to HDL ratio, which uh, was a sign of his uh, insulin resistance went down by 6%. And uh, he felt much better. He was feeling some symptoms of Angela with climbing stairs. Uh, and then after doing the online program, these symptoms uh, uh, completely went away. 
That is fantastic. And I know that uh, a lot of people watching this right now and listening to this are grateful for, for the coupon code and, and know that this is a, a great way, maybe not just for your own health, but certainly you can get your friends and your family involved in that because that's really what this is a, uh, about is, you know, making the world a healthier place one person at a time. So let's spread that knowledge out there. Clearly, Dr. Montgomery, you know exactly what it is that you are talking about, my friend. This has been a very enlightening hour and I can't thank you enough for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoy your questions. Always a pleasure. How great was that interview? Dr. Baxter Montgomery. Amazing stories. Amazing stories. So grateful he was here today. And I really do hope that you enjoyed that as much as I did. What he's doing down in Houston is just incredible. Even before the pandemic began, long before the pandemic began, his efforts are extraordinary. Every time I get an opportunity to speak with him, I relish it. And I really, really do hope that hearing those stories of transformations and people overcoming the odds, beating the odds now going on to lead a healthy, fruitful life? Man, that's the kind of thing that picks you up and makes you feel good, isn't it? I know I'm feeling pretty good right now. I also feel good about the show that's coming up next Tuesday on the podcast, okay? We've been talking about this one for a while. We will be speaking about the connection between gut health and COVID-19 when I sit down with gastroenterologist Dr. Will Bolsowitz. Now, he is the author of the new book, Fiber Fueled. So we're going to learn all about the critical role, the central role that your gut microbiome can play in terms of your immune system. And that leads to the body's ability to fight off viruses. So, What could that possibly mean then in terms of fighting the coronavirus? What we do know right now is that there is no actual immunity to it, but it does appear that the healthier a person is, and in essence, the healthier their gut microbiome is, the better their chances of having mild symptoms if they become infected or being asymptomatic altogether. A big part of that begins in the gut. So definitely looking forward to that conversation with Dr. Will Bolsowitz coming up next Tuesday here on the Exam Room Podcast. But before then, I'm telling you, we could use your help. We just heard an extraordinary show today. Dr. Barnard and Dr. Vanita Rahman answering your questions. And then, of course, the inspirational stories from Dr. Baxter Montgomery. We need to get these out to as many people as possible, and we need your help to do that. We need to get this information in front of the eyes and into the ears of people who need it the most, because at the heart of this show is our drive to make the world a healthier place. And one of the best ways, the easiest ways that you can help us achieve that, play a big role in this, is just by subscribing to the exam room by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever shows are available. And also, when you do, please leave a five-star rating. Because not only 
well then you begin to get new episodes automatically, but you will also be helping to get this information to those whose health may be in jeopardy. The more subscriptions, the more positive reviews we receive, the higher the show climbs in the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it is for people to find us. And then learn all of this potentially life-saving information. Pretty cool stuff, right? I think so. I definitely think so. My thanks again to Drs. Neil Barnard and Vanita Raman, and of course, Dr. Baxter Montgomery for joining us. What an incredible show we had today. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, stay safe and keep it plant-based. <laughs>